Our study is in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And I'll start at verse 1. Read verses 1 until the end. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. But the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, 
and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We have here described oracles of the Lord Jesus directed at several churches, churches that existed in Asia Minor in what is modern Turkey. To these seven churches that are in chapters 2 and 3, some of them are here, four of them are here listed in chapter 2. It is the Lord Jesus who is addressing them. In some of your Bibles, it's more obvious that Jesus is the one speaking because it's in red letters. Not that that's the way it is in the original language, but some editions of the Bible in English place them in red to help us know that Jesus is speaking. Jesus is indeed speaking. We ought to keep that in mind. But we also should keep in mind, since we, I just mentioned the red letters, because they are red letters does not mean they are more important words or more inspired words than the black letters of the Bible. The black letters of the Bible are also a part of what the Holy Spirit gave the prophets and the apostles. So we should keep all of Scripture in mind as written by the Holy Spirit and of equal authority. They don't have equal application, but they do have equal authority. They are words of the Holy Spirit, inspired, reliable, and for our edification. Now, back to the fact that Jesus is speaking. The book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's revealing, it's, it's uncovering for us who Jesus is and what he does. His person and his ministry are here declared in this book. That's actually what the whole Bible is about. Uh, he who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. And this is eternal life, that they may, have, uh, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, John 17, 3. That's what the whole Bible is about, to reveal Christ. And in particular, in these chapters, in Revelation, we see who Jesus is and what his ministry is to his people, but also his judgment on those who refuse to repent. Sometimes those who refuse to repent are in the visible local church. People that claim to be Christians, claim to be a part of the church, but are really not a part of the church. They're not a part of the true church. That's some of it, and that is what's happening in chapters 2 and 3 of this book. This is what our focus is this evening. Chapter 2. The first, the first address is to the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus in verses 1 to 7. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Jesus' message 
to this church at Ephesus. We could say that this is a mini epistle, and these are mini epistles, small letters written to the various churches. We have larger letters written by Paul and others, but these are small letters written to them. The applicability of what he says here is applicable to all ages, all periods of time, all believers, all who are a part of the church. So verse 1, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now when it says angel, some interpreters believe it is actually an angel, such as it says in Revelation 1 verse 1, that there is an angel who conveys Jesus' words to John. And we see this angel mentioned again in chapter 19 verse 10 and 22 8 and 9, that there was an actual angel. We don't know the name of the angel, but there was an angel who revealed the word to John. That's one interpretation, so that the angels in these churches are angels that are overseeing and are interested in the ministry of those churches and who support the ministry of the churches, support the people of the churches. For example, Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. That is one way to look at it. Another way to look at this expression, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, is to consider the angel to be a messenger or the pastor and minister of that local church. The main minister of that local church is the one who is addressed so that he might receive this word and then deliver it to his people. Now, it is true also that ministers of the gospel are called messengers. They are called that sometimes. For example, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 7, the priest is called the messenger of the Lord. The priest was called the messenger of the Lord. And in the book of Haggai, for example, in Haggai chapter 1, the prophet Haggai is called a messenger of the Lord. So those who minister the word of God are also called messengers. And the original word angel, or angelos in Greek, can be rendered angel, as in the first interpretation, or it could be rendered messenger, as in the second interpretation. Verse 1 continues. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Here, Jesus identifies himself as he did in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. As he revealed himself in, chapters 12, in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, he says so again here. He's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars, according to chapter 1, verse 20, they are the seven angels. He holds the angels in his right hand. He has authority over them. He controls them, and he issues commands for them to carry out. But also, Jesus is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Chapter 1, verse 20 says that these lampstands are the seven churches. The seven churches that he is addressing are also the seven churches where he walks. He knows what's there. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent according to the authority of holding these seven angels in his right hand. He's omnipotent. He has all power. But he's also 
uh, omnipresent in that he walks among those churches. He walks among all seven at the same time. That means he's omnipresent. He has his presence in all places and at all times. Nothing escapes him. Nothing escapes his power and nothing escapes his presence. Verse 2. Now his knowledge, his omniscience. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Omniscience. All knowledge. He has knowledge of what is happening there. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. Here he knows their good deeds. When he says, I know your deeds, he's speaking of their good deeds. He knows that they toil and they persevere. The Christian life is a life of toil and perseverance. He knows that they have been doing that. That is good. And he also says that they cannot endure evil men. Again, he is complimenting them. He commends the fact that they cannot endure, they cannot tolerate, they don't put up with evil men. When they know someone is evil, they don't tolerate it. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. They also test anyone who says that he's an apostle. They don't just take the man's word for it. They test him. They see what he says. They see how he lives. They, they see what he does. They see what he produces. What kind of a disciple does he produce? Does he produce twice as much a son of hell as he is? Matthew 24, 15. Does he do that? If he does that, then you know there's something wrong with his teaching because he produces false converts. And they found these false apostles, indeed, to be teaching falsehood and leading people astray. They tested them like they were supposed to do, and they found them to be false. So they jettisoned them. They set them aside. They had wanted nothing to do with them. They even perhaps threw them out of the church, which is good and right to do. Verse 3. He continues with their commendation. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. They persevered, they endured for the sake of Christ, for the name of Christ, which means it's for the gospel of Christ and for the glory of Christ that they endured these things. They did not endure and persevere because they sinned. They didn't commit a crime that made the people dislike them and hate them and even persecute them and imprison them and things of that nature. They didn't do that. But they were enduring things for the sake of Christ's name. And even though they were doing righteous things and being mistreated for that, they did not grow weary. No weariness. They persevered. They kept the joy of the Lord, which was their strength. They kept on being joyful and hopeful in the things of God. They knew that their life was of no account. They knew that they needed to hate their life to follow Christ. They knew all that, and they were practicing that. They did not grow weary. That's the commendation. Now here we have the admonition. Verse 4. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left 
your first love. They left their first love. When they first came to love Christ, they had great zeal, great enthusiasm. They wanted to do God's will every moment of the day, and they did not want to fall short in any of that. They wanted to wholeheartedly obey Christ. This is when they first came to know Christ. This is a good thing to have, but it's not a good thing to set aside. It's not good to have the blazing fire become a a smoldering wick. It's not good to have that. It's not good to have just a few embers here and there in the Christian life. And this is what was happening to them. So what's the solution? Verse 5. When we lose our first love, what is the solution? He tells them. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Remember. Remember where you have fallen. Know what you were before and know what God did for you and know what happened upon your conversion and what joy and satisfaction and delight you had in the things of God. Remember all that. And then repent because you know you're not the same as you used to be. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Repentance requires a change of life. It requires a change of values, focus, and fruit. One's life will change when one has truly repented. That's why he says, and do the deeds you did at first. The life will change. There will be a transformation. You won't be the same as you used to be if true repentance has occurred. And if true repentance does not occur, what will happen? Or else, or else is a threat. Jesus threatens the people that he loves. The people who bear his name, he threatens them with the following, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. I will remove this church that exists from where you are. I will remove it. It will disappear. It will dissipate. It won't be around anymore. It will become dead. It will be overrun. It'll be overrun by false religions. This is the threat that he is putting out there. Verse 6. Verse 6. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He returns to commending them in verse 6. They do have this. They hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which Christ also hates. They hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, and Christ hates the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans. It is good for Christians, just as it is good right here, for Christ to hate evil deeds. This has to be recovered, to hate evil deeds. Now, what were the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans? It may be, if we read in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, what we read here. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. And what was that stumbling block? To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts 
of immorality. This is what Balaam and Balak were doing to Israel. This is found in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapters 22 to 25. Numbers 22 to 25. But then he says in 15, Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You also have some who in the same way. If the Nicolaitans were teaching the same kinds of things, this is the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans. Basically, they are breaking the Ten Commandments. To eat things sacrificed to idols is to break the first half or the first table of the commandments. The commandments uh, 1 to 4 to practice idolatry. And then the second table, the last six commandments, to do immoral things. And specifically here, sexually immoral things most likely, that they are breaking the second half of the table. They're not loving their neighbor as themselves in the proper way. They're not loving God and they're not loving their neighbors. These kinds of things, whenever anybody breaks any of the Ten Commandments, even ourselves, when anybody does so, we ought to hate it because Christ hates it. Back to verse 7. He concludes as he does all of these addresses with the following. He who has an ear, ear to ear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has a spiritual ear, he who has his ear open, because God has opened the ear. Deuteronomy 29.4 Until this day, the Lord has not given you eyes to see, nor ears to hear, or a heart to understand. God has to give us an ear to hear, and eyes to, to see, and a heart to understand. He has to change the heart, change the ear. Those among them who have that, those among us who have an open ear that's not stopped up anymore, an open ear to hear the things of God, let him hear. Make sure you not let what you hear fall on deaf ears. Make sure you don't let it go in one ear and out the other ear. Don't be just hearers of the words and not doers of the words because those kinds of people delude themselves. When you hear it, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Act upon it because it is the words of the Holy Spirit. It is the words of the Holy Spirit. What John writes, what Jesus conveyed to John by the mediation of an angel is from the Holy Spirit. All of these words are from the Spirit of God. And they are addressed to the churches. Notice it says churches. Even though it is written to the church at Ephesus, it is written to churches generally. It does not only apply to Ephesus, it applies to churches of all periods of time. And then a reward. What awaits those who are faithful? Verse 7 says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To him who overcomes. Well, by what means do we overcome? To overcome, to endure until the end is what he means. But what is the means of overcoming? We're told that in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. 1 John 5, 4. 
For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. 1 John 5, 4-5. When we are born of God, it is guaranteed that we overcome the world. Verse 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. We will overcome if we've been born again by God. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What is the means, what is the instrument God uses after we are born again to continue and to be victoriously overcoming the world? Our faith. Maintain our faith in God. Have faith in God. Mark eleven twenty two, And then, is it just faith generally? Is it faith in, in faith? Is it faith in our self-esteem? Is it faith in someone else? Is it faith in another religion? No. Notice verse 5, 1 John 5, 5. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It's our faith in Jesus, that He is the Son of God, who died for our sins. This is the faith that we have to have. Faith in Christ. Christ alone. And when we do overcome, verse 7, Revelation 2-7, Christ will grant, He'll give, it'll be a gift. I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life is Christ Himself. The tree of life is Christ Himself. The tree of life in the Garden of Eden signified Christ. It was a symbol of Christ, of partaking of Christ. He is the tree that we need, the tree of life. And Christ resides in the paradise of God. He resides with God, and we will reside with Him. The paradise of God is where God Himself Resides. Christ resides with the Father, and we will reside with the Son. This is what awaits us, we who overcome. If we don't overcome, then Christ will not be there for us. If we do overcome, Christ will be there for us. Verse 8. The next church is Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. He reminds them, again, of what he said in chapter 1, Revelation 1, 12 to 18. In verses 17 and 18, he says, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. The one true God, who came as a man and died for our sins, has been raised from the dead, the one true God whose death and resurrection was accomplished on our behalf is the one who's speaking. And again he says in verse 9, I know, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know your tribulation and your poverty. He knows that they have suffered tremendously for the gospel. He also knows that they are poor in the eyes of the world. In terms of material wealth, they are poor. 
No one is caring for them. No one cares for them properly. They have, however, rich faith. That's what he means, but you are rich. When he says you are rich, he means that they are rich in faith, though they are poor in the eyes of the world, rich in faith. Similarly, James says this in James chapter 2 and verse 5. James 2 verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? He says, God chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. Did not God do so? The answer is yes. This is what Jesus means in Revelation 2.9. They are poor physically, but rich spiritually. And verse 9 says, And the blasphemy, he also knows, the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. There are Jews... There were Jews at that time, and there are also throughout history. There were Jews who say they are Jews, but they're really not. Really, when they gather, when they worship together, they gather as a synagogue of Satan. The place of worship was called the synagogue, and it is called the synagogue for Jews. And when they met, they claimed to be Jews, and they were proud to have the name Jew, but they were really worshiping Satan. They're really controlled by the devil. Jesus said in John 8, 44, to the Jews, you are of your father, the devil. You are of your father, the devil. Why is it that Jesus says they are Jews, they say they are Jews, but they're not. But they're really of Satan. Because of what he said in John 8, 44, but also what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2. In Romans chapter 2, verse 17, this was their problem as the Jewish people. Romans 2, 17. And mind you, their problem is also our problem. We say we're Christians, but we do the same thing. Romans 2, 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew 
who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. The Apostle made it very clear. We cannot be hypocrites, bearing the name Jew, and then not living like a Jew. This is what Jesus meant. And if that's the case, if we live like hypocrites, we're actually of Satan. Now, verse 10, Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. In verse 10, before it happens, he tells them, do not fear. Jesus often does this, do not fear, and he tells us in advance of what is to happen, so we're not surprised. Jesus did this in Matthew 10. Peter did this in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4.12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised at it. Don't be surprised when things happen. Don't fear. It's going to happen. Know for sure that this will happen. You are going to suffer. And all suffering by the human hands actually comes about by the devil. <coughs> Satan or the devil. Verse 10. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. The devil who inspires unbelievers to attack believers will throw these believers into prison, but it will be temporarily for 10 days, a short time. It will be suffering it will be harmful, it will cause much grief, but it will only be for a period of 10 days. Now, some interpreters take the 10 days to be 10 days in terms of periods of time or under certain emperors, 10 emperors, and they try to correlate this to that. I, I think it's simple and be simply best to take it as a short period of time and maybe even a literal 10 days. It's going to be a short time compared to eternity. And even if it were literally 10 days, it's 10 days and not 10 years or for the rest of your life. Think of suffering as temporary. It's not anything to compare with the life to come and eternal life. Be faithful until death, he says. Faithful until death. This is why he may be just meaning a short time compared to eternity. Ten days is short compared to eternity. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life awaits. This is what he says in 3.11 as well. He says, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. And James 1.12, James mentions the crown of life for us who endure he says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life awaits us. We will receive this token of approval from God that he is indeed pleased with us. We will have life 
and enjoy eternal life forever and ever. Again, verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. He reminds them that overcoming is necessary and that by faith, overcoming with faith is necessary and when we do endure, we will not be hurt by the second death. Well, what is the second death? According to Revelation 21.8, Revelation 21.8, it calls the lake of fire the second death. Eternal punishment, in other words, is the second death. Revelation 21.8, but for the cowardly, the cowardly are the ones who don't overcome. They shrink back. They don't maintain their faith. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The first death that we experience in, the, in terms of the biblical first death, second death, is the physical death. The physical death is applicable to every person with a couple of exceptions. Enoch in Genesis 5 and Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1. With a, with a couple of exceptions, all people die. That's the first death. The second death is for those who refuse to believe in the gospel. Everyone else who does not believe in the gospel will be thrown into the lake of fire. And that's called the second death. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, Right. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. According to chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, again, we're told that Jesus is the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Verse 16, his, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This sword is his word. Notice it says in verse 16, I will make war... This is Revelation 2.16. I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. With the sword of my mouth. And in Revelation 19, he, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations. He's not going to have a literal sword and then kill every person who lives on the earth at that time. That's not what it means. It means he's going to speak the word of judgment and there will be condemnation on all who refuse to repent. This is what it means in Revelation chapter 2. He has this sharp two-edged sword. So, in this case, he is highlighting the fact that he is God, he is the one with a word of punishment and judgment. Verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Again, he knows what good they've done. He commends them. He knows where they dwell. This city, Pergamum, was notorious for emperor worship. The em emperor worship was there, and worship of major gods and goddesses took place in Pergamum. Zeus, for example, had a major temple in Pergamum. And so he calls it where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. Because there was so much idolatry there. 
idolatry of false gods and also humans, emperors, who consider themselves gods. Worship of them, it was prolific in that city, so he calls it where Satan's throne is. Jesus believes, in other words, what the rest of the scriptures teach, that when people worship idols, they worship Satan. Jesus said that. Jesus taught that. When, for example, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10, the apostle there says this very thing in verses 14 to 22. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices shares in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice the demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? Jesus is saying the same. When people worship idols, they are worshiping Satan. However, even though this one Antipas, we don't know who Antipas was. Antipas was one who did not deny the faith. He held fast to the name of Christ. He was a witness of Christ. He was a faithful one. And he was killed in their very midst. He refused to worship idols and people killed him. And they all saw that. People might wonder when they see that. Did Antipas sin? Was Antipas in God's disfavor? Isn't it better to have the, the majority of people on your side? Because if the majority of the people aren't on your side, they might put you to death too. They might put us to death too. People think those thoughts when they see a faithful believer put to death. But Jesus makes the point, no, no. Hold fast my... He exhorts them. You hold fast my name, good, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you. You have maintained your faith. You're doing right. That's good. Antipas did right, and you're doing right. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart, and don't think that it's not worth it. Verse 14. Now their admonition. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Balaam was a sorcerer, according to Numbers 22-25. to He was a sorcerer. And he was against God. He was hired by Balak, the king, the king of Moab, and even by the Midianite kings, he was hired by them both in order to pronounce a curse against Israel in the wilderness in the time of Moses. However, by God's Holy Spirit, God made 
Balaam pronounced blessings instead of cursings against Israel. But eventually, Balaam succeeded in tripping up the sons of Israel. Eventually, by Numbers 25, they ate things sacrificed to idols, they worshipped idols, they intermarried and committed acts of immorality with the Moabite women. Apparently, according to extra-biblical sources among the Jews, it, they had the Moabites said, listen, if we're going to get them, let's get some women from our side to go into the camp of Israel, and that's how we'll trip them up. And that's what they did. They sent women into the camp of Israel, and that's how they committed immorality, they worshipped idols, and because of it, 24,000 people died. It says in Numbers 25, 24,000 people died. And there were people in that church inciting them, enticing them to break the Ten Commandments, to worship idols and to commit immorality. And Jesus says, a few things I have against you because you have there some. Why are they still there in the church? Right. Why has no one in the church rebuked them? Why has no one in the church organized the church through the proper steps to throw the rascals out of the church? That's why he had a few things against them. And verse 15, Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Apparently, this group, the Nicolaitans, were doing this very thing, this kind of thing. This is a common plague throughout church history. From the, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, this is the common plague. You will have people in the church saying that they are Christians and that it is okay to be a Christian and to be an idolater. It's okay to be a Christian and to be an adulterer or a thief, whatever, or a liar. It's okay to be one thing or the other and a Christian at the same time. Jesus says, no way. In fact, he says in verse 16, repent therefore. He's saying, repent. Turn away from all that sin and evil, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He will come quickly, they might become sick. They might die. There might be something like that that happens to them. Somebody might invade them. Somebody might come and destroy their church. Something like that would happen, could happen. He says, I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. I will pronounce the word, and judgment will come. Jesus is the one who will come, and personally condemn the people who refuse to repent. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. He says here that the overcomers, we overcomers will receive hidden manna, Hidden manna. The, the hidden manna is most likely Christ himself. Because 
In John chapter 6, 32 to 35, and also 48 to 58, Jesus declared himself to be the bread of life and the bread that came out of heaven. And anyone who partakes of this bread shall live forever. He is this hidden manna, the manna that we all must partake of and we all must discover. And we can discover it only if God reveals the manna to us shows us where the manna is located and gives us that ability. This is also what Jesus says in John chapter 6. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John six forty four. So we can come to Jesus and partake of him if God un- unveils, reveals this manna to us. He's hidden But he's not hidden to the ones that God draws to Christ. And he says, I will give him a white stone. A white stone. Among the Jews, they have this phrase of the stone of the sanctuary. The stone of the sanctuary. And they say that the priests and the Levites had to be evaluated to make sure that they were clean and that they were properly ready and suitable for the service of the temple. They had to be evaluated. And we see certain examples of this in the Old Testament, that if somebody was not proven to be from the Levites, then he was excluded from the ministry. This happens, for example, in the book of Ezra. Upon the return from exile, some of the men, they could not prove that they were Levites and priests, so they couldn't serve. Well, if they were properly evaluated and found to be suitable for service, then they were given a white stone. They were given a white stone. And Jesus is saying to us that we will be given a white stone in the sense that acceptable to God because we overcome. We are ones who can be there in the worship of God, in the service of God, have this intimacy with God that priests and Levites had that the rest of the people did not have in that typological setting of the temple. He's saying we will have that. And we'll also have a new name written. A new name written on the stone. A new name written on the stone. Isaiah 56.5 and other places in Isaiah, he indicates that people who are rightly related to God are adopted in his family. We have a new name because we belong to a new father. This is the new name that we will receive. We have the new name meaning we have the inherited or adopted name that God gives us that we belong to him. And he says, which no one knows but he who receives it. By no one knows, I don't think he's saying God doesn't know or Christ doesn't know, but he's trying to emphasize the fact that it is special privilege and special knowledge that we experience. We experience it, and it's not something that is commonly given and well known. Few people have it, and few people know it. This is what he means. Which no one knows, but he who receives it. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. This too 
he's picking up a description which he already mentioned in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, that he has, Christ has eyes like a flame of fire. He calls himself here the Son of God. He's proving by his own declaration that he uniquely is the only begotten Son of God. He only has a relationship with the Father that no one else has. We are sons of God by adoption. He is the Son of God by nature. He has a nature, a being, an essence that is deity. We don't have that. We are adopted sons of God because we're redeemed. He did not need to be redeemed because He by nature possesses deity, a a divine nature. He is that. He has eyes like a flame of fire. Eyes like a flame of fire means eyes that are wise and discerning. Eyes that know. Again, emphasizing His omniscience. And also it says, His feet are like burnished bronze. Feet like burnished bronze. His feet are not clay feet, like the figure that Daniel saw in Daniel 2. His feet are burnished bronze. They are pure, completely pure and holy. And these pure and holy feet are stable and durable feet that go where they want and trample where they want and accomplish what they want. And they're ablaze. Because they, like the eyes, they can do whatever is necessary, wherever necessary. The eyes and the feet. Jesus' eyes and feet. First, the commendation. Verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. He knows their good deeds. They have love for God, love for one another. They have faith in God. They maintain their faith. They serve. They serve well. They help one another. They provide for one another. And also perseverance. Yes, it's hard. Yes, the, the, the days are long. No one likes them. But they persevere. They endure. And that their deeds of late are greater than at first. They had greater deeds. More deeds. More zealous deeds. And that's all good. They were growing and improving in their Christian life. However, verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Here there's a woman who claims to be a prophetess. They didn't test her. As they were told in the Ephesian church in chapter 2, verse 2, they were commended because they put to the test those who called themselves apostles. They put those apostles, false apostles, to the test. But here, this church in Thyatira did not test this prophetess. In fact, they committed immorality and idolatry. Jesus threatens them. 21. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Is Jesus impatient? (laughs) No. Jesus is long-suffering. He waits and waits and waits. Can you imagine the unholiness and sin that's taking place in the sight of a holy Christ? And He's waiting. 
He's giving her time to repent. He doesn't say how long, but we know it's sufficient because he's declaring it to be sufficient. I gave her time and she doesn't want to repent. Christ gives us time to repent. But when repentance is not forthcoming, what happens? 22. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. He'll put her, Jezebel, on a bed of sickness, meaning a sick bed. He'll make her sick. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, there will be great suffering for those who are complicit with her unless they repent of her deeds. It continues, verse 23, And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. He'll kill her children, and then all the churches will know from all of this tragedy that Christ is the one, I am he, who searches the hearts and the minds. Christ is the one who knows inside every individual. He's the one who knows. And He's the one who distributes rewards accordingly. Those who did the good, life. Those who did the evil, death. Jesus does this. He is threatening this church. This church with this kind of threat. 1 Corinthians 11. People think that this is hyperbolic language or symbolic, something or the other like that, in order to dismiss the severity of what Jesus is saying. But actually, the Apostle Paul speaks this way also in 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, there was dissension surrounding the Lord's table. And therefore, he says in verse 27, 1 Corinthians 11, 27, the Apostle says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. When he says sleep, that's a figure of speech for death. Some of them died. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. Because of their approach to the Lord's table, their sinful approach to it, he says, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And this is the judgment of of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord against them. This is the same thing Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2. When we don't take the things of God the way we should, seriously, God gives us time to repent, but if no repentance is there, there will be judgment. Sometimes it will be manifest and quite openly understood to be a judgment of the Lord in this life. But sometimes it may not. But eventually, it will happen. Everyone will receive according to their deeds. Verse 24, But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, 
who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. He commends them here because there are some who don't hold this teaching. They don't know these deep things of Satan. So he's saying to them, I don't place any other burden on you. It doesn't mean he doesn't have anything else for them to obey. He's meaning, in my oracle of what needs immediate attention, this is what I'm placing on you. Deal with this immediately. I place no other burden on you means deal with this one issue I've raised right now. This is what needs you to act on it quickly. He does not imply that there's nothing else for them to obey. He could not be saying that because there are many things in the Bible, even in the New Testament, that God expects of us. Verse 25, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Hold fast. He, he called on them to hold on to and now to hold fast all this. It's necessary to cling on to the faith until the very end. Because it's easy to let go. It's easy to give up. It's easy to be weary and to say, your hands are too tired. No, hold fast. Cling on until he comes. When he comes, what will happen? 26. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. The ones who overcome, we who overcome, Keep the deeds of Christ, the obedience of Christ, the example of Christ until the end. Christ will give us authority over the nations. The Father, in Psalm 2, the Father gave the Son authority over the nations, and then the Son will give us authority over the nations on the day of judgment. He will divide His responsibility to us. He will divide it and give it to us to do, to carry out. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this very thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? The Apostle says that saints will judge the world and saints will judge angels. This is what Jesus says. We overcomers who endure until the end Christ will give us authority over the nations and we're going to rule over them and break them in pieces. That's judgment. That's punishment. Right. We will declare a word of judgment to them because the Son of God has given us that authority. He will share that authority with us. And then verse 28. Not only will there be judgment, there will be blessing. Verse 28. Revelation 2.28 And I will give him the morning star. I will give him the morning star. The morning star 
according to Revelation 22.16, is Christ Himself. Christ described Himself as the morning star. 22.16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Jesus Himself is this radiant and brilliant morning star. He is the morning star, and He will give Himself to us. I will give Him the morning star. We will enjoy communion with Christ. Now, just as the morning star is a bright morning star, as He called Himself in 2216, He will share some of that glory with us. He is the morning star that He will give Himself to us, but He'll give us some of that brilliance and glory to us. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. He says there in verse 2, When He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him just as He is. Some of the glory that He has, He will give to us. Daniel explained this in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 and verses 2 to 3. Daniel 12, 2 to 3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the, the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Verse 2, there are two resurrections, one to life and the other to disgrace and contempt. But the ones who are raised to life will shine brightly, verse 3 says, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and we are characterized as leading many to righteousness and will be like the stars forever and ever. And one more, and that is Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, Jesus says the following. Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun, in the kingdom of their Father, he who has ears, let him hear. There are two outcomes. We will be there shining brightly and we will punish the wicked. Verse 29, Revelation 2.29, he closes with, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those with a true heart, a true sight, a true sense of hearing, 
will hear the words of God and act upon them. They will love Jesus for not only being gentle, but also being our supreme judge. He who has an ear to ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.